There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. On this week's No Restraint Podcast, I'm going to pose some questions and see if I can come up with some answers. Some of them will be my answers, and some of them will be the answers of experts. Andy Pudzer, where are you now? Well, let me ask you this question. Is there any way to fix the Biden economy? Just about everybody on Wall Street knows, in spite of what you might be reading in the financial newspapers, that the Biden administration's economic policies are driving our economy into a full-out recessionary ditch. In a recent Wall Street Journal survey of 23 large financial institutions that do business directly with the Federal Reserve, 16 of them predicted a recession in 2023, and two predicted a recession in 2024, while only five predicted that we would avoid a recession. Although even those five predicted we'd have only one half percent economic growth, well below the 2.1 percent average over the past 20 years and dangerously close to what has traditionally been considered a recession. A recession is defined traditionally as two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. At least it was defined that way before the financial press redefined it prior to the 2022 midterms, ensuring that despite two consecutive quarters of negative growth, President Biden's policies couldn't be labeled recessionary. But regardless of the definition, this negative growth means declining standards of living, fewer job opportunities, lower wages, and increased poverty for the American people. Overall, we're a far less vibrant and far less prosperous society, and we're on the verge of a serious recession. The hard economic times that we're experiencing are especially striking as they come on the heels of the Trump boom, which opened our eyes again to American economic potential when we have low taxes, reduced regulation, and a bountiful supply of domestic energy. Everybody, particularly minority and low-wage earners, reaped the benefits in the Trump years of abundant job opportunities and increasing wages and historic highs in family income and historic lows in rates of poverty and unemployment across the board in every community, every gender. Consider some of the metrics. In 2019, the last year before the pandemic, Median family income grew to nearly $73,000. It went up 4600 in that year alone, a 6.4% increase over 2018, the largest annual increase going back to 1967. 
That amounted to 45% more growth in one year than the 3,200 increase that the Obama administration achieved in eight years. And contrary to what would become an election year talking point, the economic benefits were widespread. Every racial group experienced a record high median family income level. For white Americans, it rose 5.7%. For black Americans, 7.9%. For Hispanic Americans, 7.1%. And for Asian Americans, 10.6%. So as incomes grew in 2019, the poverty rate plummeted 1.3 percentage points to a 60-year low of 10.5%. That's the lowest poverty rate since the government started reporting the statistic in 1959. This lifted 4.1 million people out of poverty. For comparison purposes, during the eight years of the Obama administration, the number of people living in poverty increased by 787,000. And again, the decrease in the poverty rate under Trump disproportionately benefited minorities. The poverty rate decreased eight-tenths of a percent point for whites, two percentage points for blacks, 1.8% for Hispanics, and 2.8% for Asians. The year 2019 should be remembered as the year of the worker. And that wasn't due to mandated wage increases or racial reparations or climate regulations or tax increases or any other redistributist policy. Working-class Americans saw their circumstances materially improve in 2019 because of policies that encouraged economic freedom. Turning the clock ahead, since March 2021, two months after Biden took office and began reversing Trump's economic policies, the Consumer Price Index, the average in prices paid by consumers for goods and services by which inflation is commonly measured, has surged and it continues to surge. When representatives of the Biden administration say that inflation is coming down, they are playing word games. From month to month, inflation may be going up at a somewhat slower rate, that is, the rate at which inflation is increasing might be down from previous highs, but the increases are cumulative. So the dollar impact of each monthly increase adds to the prior month's increases. And even though the rate of increases is moderating, it still remains well above levels seen prior to the Biden presidency. The Federal Reserve aims to keep inflation around 2%, which is roughly where it was during the Trump administration. It is now at 6.4%, having at one point since 2021 hit 9%. Granted, the Federal Reserve has to take some of the blame. It failed to react in a timely manner when inflation started to set in. Remember when everyone insisted that the inflation we were experiencing was transitory? Turned out to be anything but. And for that reason, since last year, the Federal Reserve has been increasing interest rates at the fastest pace since the 1980s. It intends to continue raising rates because inflation has proven so persistent and widespread And the longer these interest rates hikes continue, the more inevitable it becomes that we will suffer a deep recession. This situation has not come about on its own. It was engineered. When the pandemic ended, all we needed to do to create dynamic economic growth again was to leave in place the policies we had before the pandemic. But of course, we didn't. 
Coming out of the pandemic, we knew two things. First, we knew people had accumulated a lot of money. The savings rate had surged in an unprecedented way during the pandemic. And when the pandemic was over, this resulted in an increased demand for goods. This surge in the savings rate wasn't a mystery. The federal government handed out $5 trillion during the pandemic, and people had very little opportunity to spend it since they weren't traveling, they weren't eating out, they weren't going shopping, etc. So in 2021, Americans had a lot of cash. The second thing we knew coming out of the pandemic was that fewer people were working. If you tried to get anything done around your house back then, you will remember that. First, you couldn't get anybody to do the work. Then if you found someone, you couldn't get the goods or materials you needed because they weren't being produced. People were not working and businesses were unable to anticipate future demand. The result was a low supply of goods. Excess demand and low supply. This was the situation when Biden took office in 2021. And as any student of elementary economics knows, when demand exceeds supply, you get inflation. Isn't it pretty obvious what should be done in that situation? You should adopt policies that juice supply and avoid adopting policies that juice demand. Instead, the Biden administration proceeded to do the exact opposite. Although the pandemic recession was the shortest recession on record, the economic chaos it created was incredible. And as Milton Friedman said in 1964, the deeper the recession, the greater the recovery. Coming into office in January 2021, the Biden administration was witnessing the beginnings of a dynamic recovery. And perhaps they thought that it would continue no matter what they did, that Americans would flock back to work, spend money, travel, go back to restaurants, and so on. So the administration and the Democrats in Congress saw it as a prime opportunity to enact legislation to remake America. This shouldn't come as a surprise. A New York Times Magazine headline following Biden's inauguration read, the Biden team wants to transform the economy, really. During the campaign, Biden himself said of his plans, I truly think that if we do this right, we have an incredible opportunity to not just dig out of this crisis, but to fundamentally transform the country. That's how Democrats saw the pandemic, as an opportunity for radical change. So a little more than a month into the Biden presidency, on a totally partisan basis, the Democrats in Congress passed and Biden signed a $1.9 trillion spending bill they called the American Rescue Plan. Talk about a misnomer. This so-called rescue plan handed out more cash to American consumers, further increasing demand and discouraging work, further decreasing supply. That this was economic suicide wasn't only obvious to conservative free market types like myself, but Larry Summers, who served as Secretary of the Treasury under President Clinton and as head of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama, a former president of Harvard and a well-respected liberal economist, called this the least responsible economic policy in 40 years. All you needed to understand this was a simple familiarity with the laws of supply and demand vis-a-vis -vis inflation. This is elementary. It's simple. The problem is ideological. 
Here's Biden, who responded to a young person during the 2020 campaign. Kiddo, he said, I want you to just take a look, okay? You don't have to agree, but I want you to look in my eyes. I guarantee, I guarantee we're going to end fossil fuel. And this wasn't just one of his all-too-common gaps. But there's even more bad news. Since so many people are not working and wages have been declining for those who are working due to inflation, savings have now declined to historic lows. In fact, to the lowest level we've seen going back to 1959. People are running out of cash, and as a result, they're using credit cards. Credit card debt, when Biden took office, was at $748 billion, and it stayed there until May of 2021 again, until shortly after the passage of the American Rescue Plan, at which point it began to shoot way up to what it is now, $986 billion, the highest level of credit card debt in our history. And this is happening at a time when the Federal Reserve is compelled to continue raising interest rates to try to battle inflation. To sum up, with wage growth unable to keep up with inflation, savings are melting like an ice cube in the summer sun and credit card debt rising to historic highs. And we're facing higher interest rates, declining job opportunities and increasing economic pain for American families. So is there anything the Biden administration could do? To repeat, inflation is the result of demands exceeding supply. The Federal Reserve, with its hikes in interest rates, is trying to drive down demand. But if it has to drive demand all the way down to where supply is right now, it's going to cause incredible misery for the American people. So from an economic standpoint, if the Biden administration wanted to lessen the misery and hasten recovery, it would do whatever it could to increase supply. And there are two areas where it could have significant positive impact on the supply side, the cost of energy and the cost of labor. In the Trump economy, increased wages resulted from businesses competing with other businesses for workers. Today, increased wages are the result of businesses competing with government benefits. If increasing people's dependence on government is your goal, this is a great approach. It is a dreadful approach if your goal is bringing inflation to heal and sparking a dynamic economic recovery. The bottom line is this. To address inflation and avoid a deep recession, Biden should first tell American bankers and asset managers and bureaucrats and environmentalists to get out of the way of the energy industry because America needs oil now. Second, he should work with Congress to reduce or eliminate the work-discouraging programs that are keeping able-bodied Americans out of the workforce. We should not cut programs for those who need assistance, but we should reduce benefits for those who are able to work but are choosing not to work. With abundant energy and a vibrant workforce, we could make significant headway against inflation and quickly improve the lives of the American people. This isn't rocket science, but let's be realistic. The problem isn't that the policymakers in the Biden administration don't understand the basic principles of economics. The problem is they have different goals than most Americans. When Biden spoke during the campaign about transforming America, he meant it. The goal animating current policy is not the goal of creating widespread prosperity by means of a dynamic and productive economy. 
The goal animating current policy is the transformation of America's economy and our way of life in accordance with a leftist political agenda, using so-called emergencies like climate change as a rationale. The Biden administration is not going to take the simple measures needed to increase American energy production and get people back in the workforce because that's not in line with their goals. Americans need to open their eyes to the fact that our elected leaders across the political spectrum understand clearly what policies will lead to prosperity and freedom for the American people, but that only some of those leaders consider prosperity and freedom the goal. We need more of them. On a very different note, I want Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I want to talk about Hollywood's Great Awakening. A movie called Jesus Revolution has grossed $49 million in ticket sales. So far, it actually bested many of the year's Oscar nominees. So I'm going to tell you a story through the words of Olivia Rheingold on Free Press. The projector shut off just as Kirsten Erickson started to tear up. She had been watching Jesus Revolution, waiting for the pastor in the movie to baptize the leading man in the ocean. And that's when someone ran into the room saying that lightning had struck the theater. As the audience chattered among themselves, Erickson sat silent. I just remember having this burning sensation in my heart. Erickson, a 22-year-old, training to become a missionary, recalls thinking. Suddenly, she rose from her seat near the front, turned to face the rest of the audience, and introduced herself, asking, does anybody need prayer in this room? At first, it was quiet, but then people started speaking up. A woman in the back confessed she had cancer. A mother revealed her two young sons were at prom that night and said, pray for my boys that they will grow up to be godly men and make good decisions. A woman who said she worked with kids on drugs poured out her heart with a quivering voice. People with addiction are so misunderstood and so judged, and we have hundreds of thousands of kids, including my own children, that are now sober, said the woman in a now viral TikTok of the exchange. And I just would like you guys to pray for opening your minds to what exactly the movie showed, she continued. They're just seeking something, and it's God. Kirsten, you just gave me hope, girl. These scenes, more common inside a place of worship, happened last month at Starlight Triangle Square Cinemas in Costa Mesa, California, at a screening of Jesus Revolution, a new movie depicting a real-life 1970s movement that saw thousands of hippies give up drugs for God. That crusade, led by Pastor Chuck Smith with the help of hippie preacher Lonnie Frisbee, coincidentally started at a cavalry church just a few miles from the theater where Erickson made her call to prayer. Inspired by a 1971 Time magazine article about the movement, the co-director bought a copy of the magazine on eBay and starring Kelsey Grammer as a straight-laced preacher and Joel Courtney as a hippie convert, 
Jesus Revolution is something of a Hollywood miracle. It's a religious movie that's actually a hit. Made by Christian production house Kingdom Story Company and backed by mega distributor Lionsgate, the film earned back its $15 million budget the weekend it opened, when critics predicted it would gross closer to 6 or $7 million. That's a triumphant performance compared to the weekend debuts of recent blockbusters like 65, a sci-fi flick with a $91 million budget that made just $12.3 million, and M. Night Shyamalan's thriller Knock at the Cabin, which brought in $14.1 million. Since its release on February 24th, Jesus Revolution has grossed $49 million in ticket sales, besting many of this year's Oscar nominees combined at U.S. box offices. It's a very good story, well told, says Roma Downey, who runs Lightworkers Media, a faith-based division of MGM. It didn't hurt that they have the name Jesus in the title. For Christians, that's attention-grabbing. It's a provocative title. Christian colleges and church groups around the country have been pouring into theaters. One couple in Madisonville, Kentucky, bought out an entire day's showings of the film earlier this month just so everyone in their town could see it for free. Also, Downey said, people are hungry for goodness. People are hungry for change, especially after the pandemic. For a minute, it looked like the world as we knew it was coming to an end. Then what were the things that were important? I think it helped people refocus on family, faith, those sort of values. Jesus Revolution marks the sixth and most successful movie from Kingdom Story Company, a partnership between producer Kevin Downs, producer Tony Young, and brothers Andrew and John Irwin to make Christian entertainment exclusively for Lionsgate. The Irwin brothers, whose stated mission on their website is spreading the message of the gospel through film, first got Hollywood's attention when their $7 million budget drama, I Can Only Imagine, grossed over $85 million in 2018. Christians in Hollywood, no, not an oxymoron, just an endangered species, hope that its success means more Christian films will be greenlit. There's a desire to give the faith-based audience movies that they can embrace and enjoy, said Paul Bedian, a media analyst at Comscore, an agency that records metrics on film and TV viewership. But you also have to be able to prove that you can make these films profitable to justify future investment. And Jesus Revolution really puts a fine point on that with its performance. Ever since Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ brought in over $600 million at box offices worldwide in 2004, studio executives have been trying to resurrect its success. In 2007, Sony launched its own faith-based studio, Affirm Films, which often teams up with Alex and Stephen Kendrick, the brothers behind profitable Christian movies like War Room and Fireproof. Rich Peluso, who runs Affirm Films, says that Sony and other studios began investing more in faith-based movies once they saw dramas like War Room, which had a budget of $3 million but made almost $74 million, could deliver massive returns. If they would have done Jesus Revolution five or ten years ago, they probably would have only been able to scrape up half the budget and it would have been half as good. For me, that's the change. 
that the studios, like for me, Sony Pictures, are willing to invest more, and whereas years ago they weren't. The budgets were much, much more modest. Late next month, a firm is set to release its highest budget film yet, Big George Foreman, the miraculous story of the once and future heavyweight champion of the world, based on the true story of the boxer-turned-preacher and starring Forrest Whitaker of Black Panther fame. A-list actors now routinely star in films with religious storylines, like Mark Wahlberg, who played another boxer-turned-priest in the 2022 film Father Stew, and Hilary Swank, who's set to headline Kingdom Stories Company's next project this fall, Ordinary Angels, a film about a Kentucky hairdresser who helps cobble together money for a young girl's liver transplant. Jesus Revolution undoubtedly got a boost from its star Kelsey Grammer, famous for TV hits like Cheers and Frasier, and his co-star Joel Courtney, a teen heartthrob who previously starred in The Kissing Booth, a successful mainstream teenage comedy on Netflix. Angel Studios, a crowdfunded production house that has raised tens of millions, has also popped up to meet the demand for Christian content. Episodes of its streaming series, The Chosen, a dramatic retelling of the life of Jesus, have been watched over 450 million times since 2019 when the first season became available on the show's free app. But many studio executives, including Jared Giese, who now oversees distribution at Angel Studios, initially passed on investing in the show. Everyone was passing on it, both in Hollywood and the faith industry, because the model for Christian television was kind of broken and couldn't really fund a show like that. Now, Angel Studios' crowdfunding business model bypasses the gatekeepers of Hollywood, since its thousands of investors, ordinary people, vote on which project gets to greenlight. On March 31st, Angel Studios release its first film in theaters, His Only Son, a biblical drama covering God's command that Abraham sacrifice his beloved child. The filmmaker, David Helling, is a Marine veteran who put himself through film school on the GI Bill after returning from Iraq and edited the film himself, completing its special effects and even designing the costumes. It looks like 10 times the budget. It's this little indie film that, again, nobody would have picked this up in the traditional model. Currently, 1,900 screens are scheduled to show the movie across the U.S., but he says they're adding new theaters to the rollout every day. Meanwhile, Roma Downey, who runs Light Workers Media with her husband, Mark Burnett, the creator of Survivor, is releasing a new Christian film on Amazon Prime called On a Wing and a Prayer, starring Dennis Quaid and Heather Graham. That doesn't mean that Hollywood has entirely made its peace with Christianity. On March 11th, actor Rain Wilson, most famous for his role as Dweeby Dwight in The Office, tweeted about an anti-Christian bias in Hollywood, referencing the arc of a cult-like preacher on HBO's zombie series The Last of Us. As soon as the David character in The Last of Us started reading from the Bible, I knew he was going to be a horrific villain, Wilson tweeted. Could there be Bible-reading preacher on a show who is actually loving and kind? John Irwin, who co-helmed Jesus Revolution, says Hollywood's contempt for faith-based entertainment is something he's talked about with famed horror producer Jason Blum. He felt that horror was being disdained by the studios a couple of decades ago. They don't need real movies. 
That's sort of the same thing that's happening with the faith or the middle American audience right now. We're just thinking and dreaming, going someday, wouldn't it be cool if the studios had faith divisions and these movies were able to be in theaters and people would look at it as an actual genre? He would go on to produce God's Not Dead franchise, which White called a massive breakthrough when the first film came out in 2014, racking up over $60 million in ticket sales from a $1.1 million budget. Many film creators... Many film critics later call 2014 the year of the Bible. White points out that many Americans go to church. About two-thirds of Americans identify as Christians, with about two-thirds saying they attend church. With about two-thirds saying they attend church at least monthly. That's a lot of people. So to not have faith-based movies or even say it's a genre, I don't think it's fair. I thought it was just a marketplace that needed to be filled. And that's really where our passion was fueled to change the way Hollywood looked at these faith films. People were amazed and inspired by the movie Jesus Revolution, but it also sparked a revelation that revival is happening right now and that we're living in it and anybody can be a part of it. Thanks for listening to the No Restraint Podcast. A new one will be coming out before you miss me. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.